I do wish everyone a warm welcome. I'm so glad that each of you are here today at Providence Church. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. And uh, again, knowing that we have people here for the first time, uh, just thank you for coming. And we hope that you feel welcome and feel at home. Uh, we also have a, a group of folks that are joining us online every Sunday at this time. So I want to welcome, welcome you guys into, into worship and just say thanks for joining us so faithfully online over and over. As Mark was uh, praying and talking about September 11th, it reminded me, as probably everyone who uh, is old enough to remember, those of us who are old enough to remember to September 11th, 2001, uh, you probably remember exactly where you were, right? I remember that moment. I was in a church uh, staff meeting. I was a 21-year-old pastor, and I remember us being interrupted from that meeting and told what was going on, and um, the meeting was over. I drove, uh, rode with the pastor of the church to his house, and we sat and watched um, on the news all day long. I remember trying to get Rachel on the phone. I didn't even have a cell phone back then, you know, and just trying to talk to, this, uh, to the person that I loved the most. And everything felt so uncertain, remember? It just felt um, like the things, it felt like the ground that we'd been standing on was now, um, now falling away. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen. We didn't know all that had happened. Uh, but we knew that our hearts were breaking for our, our countrymen and, and women and that we were um, under the attack of evil, something that I had never, never felt before. And uh, I bring that up to say, as we look at the scripture this morning, we're stepping into a new place in the book of John. You're, you and I are going to be hearing words that Jesus was speaking to people that he loved who were feeling that way. They were like, oh, no, this can't be happening or is what you're saying really happening? And so they felt that same kind of uncertainty um, that we might feel on a, on a tragic event, but also that we might just feel in our, our day-to-day lives when it seems like the things that we were holding on to are no longer as, as, as firm as they were. I was fascinated to read uh, this week um, that uh, historians think that uh, one of our events, something that took place with us, is one of the most uh, mysterious uh, events that have ever happened in human history. So even secular historians, when they're talking about the greatest mysteries of human history, um, you know, you might th- things that might come to your mind like who built Stonehenge or, you know, how did the Great Pyramids get built without a crane or a dump trunk or, or whatever, or some of the things that I read about, like they don't know where Cleopatra's tomb is or where the Ark of the Covenant is or where Jimmy Hoffa is, you know, these things. It's like, you know, that we don't, we don't know. There's lots of things that happened in the past Jimmy Hoffa joke landed. I love that. <laughs> I was like, I thought, I didn't want for sure. Um, you know, there's all these things that happen in human history where we're like, we're not really sure what happened. However, probably the most um, mysterious thing that historians point to is something that happened with 12 fishermen in the northern part of Israel in the first century when they started a revolution, uneducated, Common men and women started a revolution that has now touched every corner of the world. How did that happen? How did, in a short period of time, the entire pantheon of gods in the greatest empire in the world in Rome be replaced by a Galilean rabbi who was executed by one of their very own governors? You realize how crazy this is, how fascinating. And so people ask, how in the world 
Did the message of Jesus start in that way with one person and now has gone to the corners of the earth? No one questions how, or no one questions if Jesus' message has changed the world. The question is how, how did this happen? No one would question that every sphere of culture, you know, music, literature, art, philosophy has been touched by this Galilean named Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's really uh, pretty crazy. No, no one would question that in, you know, the large cities of the world, New York, Tokyo, to the tip of South America, to, you know, the village in India, everywhere people know about Jesus. Uh, In a book called The Triumph of Christianity by Bart Ehrman, he says, Christianity was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. No one would question that today, get the today, over 2.3 billion alive human beings in hundreds of nations with dozens of presidents, prime ministers, and royalty would say, Jesus of Nazareth is my king. And so people are like, what in the world? How did this happen? How did the message spread? And it didn't spread through lecture halls or through academia or even through official royal edicts that were put out by nations. It it spread through conversation around mealtimes. These people who were converted themselves, who shared the message of Jesus. So often we think it's some big, huge thing that's going to change the world. A lot of circles I'm in, you know, people are talking about how can we, how can, uh, how can we get America to be Christian, right? Like how could, how, could, how could America be Christian when really our focus is, should be, how can we get Americans to be Christian, right? How can we get individuals? Because the message of Christ doesn't really spread in these huge ways. It spreads through individuals who are common, who are normal, but who are transformed. And they begin to live their lives in such a way. Here, here's how I think it happens. It happens because believers believe that what Jesus said is true. So you might think the world is changed by belief. Well, only partly. But when someone believes that what Jesus says is true and then lives like it, or like the early disciples are willing to die for it, there creates this movement that spreads across the world. Now, don't mishear me. Jesus is the one who's changed the world. Jesus' resurrection is the thing that got it happening. But Jesus did not go and spread it around the world. Jesus only walked an area in his life around the size of New Jersey. Instead, he said, I'm leaving, I'm going away, and y'all are going to do it. And so it's fascinating to think how these early disciples spread it. And that's why I think that what we are doing here, like what you are doing here right now, is so important. I mean, I hope it's good for you, right? I mean, that's a deep hope of ours that people could receive hope and healing here. But what would it mean for the world if we are shaped and we begin to believe that what Jesus says is true. Here's the deal. Every generation of Jesus' followers needs a wake-up call, uh, something to, to rouse us from our religious sleepiness. It's so easy to think that what we're doing here is about checking a box so that we can feel good at the end of the day. But that's never been what Christianity has been about. It's always been more personal. It's always been more powerful. It's always been more intense than that about people saying, I actually believe that what Jesus who walked the earth a long time ago said is true. And that truth is what shapes my life and what I share with the world. Because if what Jesus says is true, that means there's a peace coming in your life that makes no sense. And if what Jesus says is true, that means every grief that you've experienced is going to one day be turned to joy. And if what Jesus says is true, that means he's given us the Holy Spirit as a teacher and a power for our life. And if what Jesus says is true, it means he's the way. 
and he's the truth, and he's the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And if what Jesus says is true, I'm just quoting to you from John chapter 14. If what Jesus says is true, and you know him, then you know God, and then we are going to be able to do greater things than even him. Crazy, huh? Over the next five weeks, we're going to look at this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples from one point after he washes their dirty feet to the point where he's arrested the next morning. Like an overnight conversation where Jesus is trying to say, this is what I want you to know. For the next five weeks, we're going to look at this and think about, do we believe that what Jesus says is true? And here's what I think. If we believe what Jesus says is true, everything about us will change and we will be the ones that get swept up again in the movement of God's spirit that's taking Jesus to the world because it happens through people like us. John chapter 14 is where we're picking up. Verse 1 says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Some versions say, trust in God, trust also in me. This may be a surprise to you, but I went to school for a long time to train to be a pastor. This is me trained up, okay? I know, right? Uh, In my undergraduate degree, I had an emphasis in religious studies, studying the Bible. And then for three years after that in graduate school, I studied theology. And I did not have one class in those seven years that taught me what to do when I walked into a hospital room and someone was sick. Not one class. And so like a lot of your jobs, I had to do something called on-the-job training. And I'm not sure why it happened, probably just because it was familiar to me. But from my earliest days of being a 20-year-old pastor going into hospital rooms, my heart gravitated towards two passages of Scripture, Psalm 23 and John chapter 14. And so my guess is if I visited you in the hospital or somewhere, I have probably read to you Psalm 23 and John chapter 14. It's just my go-tos. That's what I do. I did it a couple times this week. And so when I sit down with people, I say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. I read, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Why? Uh, For many people, not everyone, but for many people, those words are familiar, right? You remember your grandma saying them. You remember the voice of your pastor when you were a kid and what it sounded like. And so familiar is comforting when you're in a scary place. But I'm not just saying it because it's familiar. I'm saying it because these are the words that Jesus shared with the people he loved when they were facing something really scary. When they were facing something uncertain, when they didn't know what tomorrow held. What Jesus has just told his disciples is that one of them is going to betray him, all of them are going to deny him, and he's about to leave. They've been walking with him. They've been following him. And he says, one of you guys is going to betray me. All of you are going to deny me. And I'm about to go. And they were afraid. And he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. What Jesus does here, I think, is begins to shift uh, the world in this claim. Because he's not saying, I'm your friend. He's saying, I am God. He says, believe in me in the way that you believe in God. But it's different than just having a God far off. It's Jesus, and he's in, he's in flesh, and he's present there. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Uh, I read this uh, commentary. Merrill Tinney says, Jesus' solution to perplexity is not a recipe. It's a relationship with him. 
When you're facing the complex, when you're facing something difficult, it's not do this, this, and this. It's be close to Jesus. He's saying, trust me. It reminds me of, you know, like what a parent might say to a kid, even like in something trivial, like, you know, when you get uh, in line with your kid at a roller coaster, right? And they're all pumped at the beginning, but when you get close, they're not feeling so sure. And you got to kind of get down there and you're like, we're going, right? You have to say, trust me. Trust me, right, to get through this. Or something more serious, like with a friend, you're talking to a friend, and they've been through what you're going through, and they say, trust me, you're going to make it. Trust me, everything's going to be okay. And so Jesus is initiating that kind of closeness where he's saying what you're going to face, the thing that's going to get you through it, is not knowledge up here or knowing how to do this or that. It's believing in me like you believe in God. Would you trust me? The next verse, he says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? You can hear the relationship in it. He's like, hey, if that wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. He's saying, you have a track record of me being trustworthy. You can trust me in this. And he says, my father's house has many dwelling places, and I have gone to prepare a place for you. A quick aside on this. If I read this uh, scripture to you, like if you're sick or I come visit you, it does not mean that you're going to die. Okay, so I have people be like, hey, what's up, pastor? Why are you going to my father's house? There's many rooms on me, you know? I'm like, your arm's broken. Chill out, you know, it's fine. It's not, so if I read this to you, I'm not saying that you're gonna die because guess what? I have no idea when you're gonna die. I have no idea. And the other part of it is I have no idea when I'm gonna die. The reason that we read this, the reason that we come to it is because Jesus is speaking to the people he loves about how to face what is upcoming And he knows that what is upcoming for us is difficult. It's not about, hey, you're going to die, so you're going to go to heaven. It is about that. But he's trying to put um, an assurance into his followers that they would be willing to sacrifice everything for him. That's what these folks are about to do. They're about to give everything for Jesus. And he's saying, hey, remember, ultimately, I have a place for you. I have a place for you that I'm preparing. In my father's house, some versions say there are many mansions. Now, that's not what the word means. It just means dwelling place or home. But the people who follow Jesus think, if Jesus is getting something ready for me up in heaven, I'm going with mansion, right? That's what I believe Jesus would do. And so in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus is not saying that we're not, we're not gonna face hard things here, but he is saying, ultimately, get this guys, ultimately, Jesus is doing something now in preparation for us that is better, better than what we're in right now. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. These words of John chapter 14 are some of the most precious words I was praying last night for you guys and for me, and I was praying, God, would you make these words of Jesus so precious to us, so precious to us, that they are um, life-giving, that they are what we hold on to. Uh, I read this, um, uh, this thing this, this week um, about John chapter 14. It was talking about the guy who wrote Peter Pan. His name was James Barry. And uh, James Berry also wrote a book about his mother. His mom's name was Margaret Ogilvie. She grew up in Scotland, you know, a long time ago. And her life was very difficult, miserable, some said. 
uh, one of the things that she faced was the loss of her son, her other son who passed away. But James writes about his mom and says, my mom's favorite chapter in the Bible was John chapter 14. She loved it. And he said, when you opened up mom's Bible and set it on the table, it would just open up to John chapter 14. And he wrote that when his mom was near death, her eyesight had faded. He said she would ask for that Bible and she would stoop down and put her face into the Bible and kiss the words of John chapter 14. Why? Because she believed that what Jesus said was true. And she had walked a life where Jesus' words had become so precious to her that it was like nourishment for her soul. Here's how Jesus closes the chapter. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Jesus is telling his friends that the thing that I'm gonna give you is the thing you really need and it's peace. I have had a lifelong struggle with anxiety. I wish that I have had a different statement for you right now. Like I, I wish that I could say to you, some years ago, it's hard to remember, I struggled with anxiety. But the truth is, this last year, I've had some of my deepest, most difficult struggles with something that I've had since I was a little boy. And so I wish that wasn't my struggle. I wish it wasn't my thorn. I've asked God to take it away. I wish it was, I, I wish it was something else. Like I wish it was plantar fasciitis, you know, or something. I don't know. I've never, I've never had that. I wish that it's like, man, Pastor Jacob's always talking about that plantar fasciitis. Man, that must be some really bad plantar fasciitis he's got. And I found out in the eight o'clock service, about half of our church has got plantar fasciitis. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get plantar fasciitis emails uh, because I'm not trying to lessen the depths of plantar fasciitis. What I'm saying is, I didn't get to choose my struggle. I didn't pick it. And if I had, I would have chose something else. And you didn't get to choose your struggle, did you? You didn't get to choose your trial. It just met you. And what Jesus was saying to his disciples that night is very important for the one who did not choose their struggle because this is not how they would have written the story. They pictured Jesus sitting on a throne and he's telling him, I'm going to a cross. But not just that, friends. You're going to one too. They didn't choose this struggle. He said, every last one of you is going to deny me. And I'm leaving. And I'm going to give my life. Three days be risen from the dead. And they're thinking, this is not what we wanted. And Jesus says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. And he says, what I'm giving you is peace. And so here's the deal. If what Jesus says is true, I'm getting peace. If what Jesus says is true, then I get to experience the peace of Jesus that he leaves with me, and I have. And if what Jesus says is true, then what you're going through right now, what you need is peace. 
It's not just the anxious guy that needs peace. Whatever you're facing, grief, you need peace. You know, the conflict in the relationship, you need peace. And Jesus says, that is exactly what I have come to give you. But you have to trust me. And so this is an invitation, these words of Jesus that become precious to the believer. We hold on to them. We read them over and over again. When we visit each other when we're sick or when we're on our deathbeds, we, we say to each other, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. He wouldn't have told us if it wasn't true, if he wasn't already going there to prepare a place for us. So I'm going to share that with our precious folks as long as I can. And whichever one of you comes and visits me someday, I hope you'll say it to me. Because these words are the words of Jesus, and they are truth. This world tells you, go find your own truth. Figure out truth on your own. And I'm telling you, that is a road to destruction. There is truth. It's found in Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life, and he wants to give to you peace. So open up your hearts this morning to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he went to the cross and he died for our sins, but he was risen from the grave which means the life that Jesus knows is a life that we get to know. And what that leads people to do is walk all over the world telling them about this Jesus of Nazareth. It spreads and it spreads and it spreads. Let us pray. God, would you make us a gospel-sharing church that knows Jesus, that believes in him, that sees little girls go into the baptismal waters and we celebrate. And would you lead us to be a people that shares and spreads Jesus to the furthest corners of our homes and the furthest corners of our community, the furthest corners of our schools and our world. Give to us today, God, peace, not as the world gives, but as you give. Amen. I invite you to join me in these words on the screen. They're going to help us get ready for Holy Communion. I'll tell you about it in just a second. If you'll repeat back the words in the bold. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to you, God, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Let's say together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Amen. I want to invite those who are helping serve communion to come forward now, along with our ushers, if you'll go ahead and find your spot in the aisles. These folks are going to cleanse their hands and prepare stations for us to come forward and receive communion, a little piece of bread and a cup of juice that you can take back to your seat and receive. Everyone here is welcome to come to the communion table. If you're a guest, know that you're welcome to come. Online worshipers, uh, we thank you for being with us and pray in this time that you would take some time to spend time with the Lord, commune with him, pray, sing, worship. But uh, don't let this moment pass uh, from having some time with God. Let us come to the table of the Lord.